I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Hala Khoury is a speaker and trainer on the subject of trauma, embodiment, and social justice. She has been teaching yoga and movement for over 25 years. Originally from Beirut, Lebanon, Hala has dedicated her life to the study of trauma, justice, and building resilience. Hala is the co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World, a training organization that bridges yoga and activism within a social justice framework. She leads collective resilience, trauma-informed yoga trainings nationally and trains direct service providers and educators to be trauma-informed and culturally responsive. She also leads a monthly online membership program called Radical Wellbeing. Hala is the author of Peace from Anxiety, Get Grounded, Build Resilience, and Stay Connected Amidst the Chaos, published by Shambhala, who's also publishing my book in the coming year. For this inaugural interview of the Beyond Trauma podcast, yoga teachers, tune in. You will want to listen carefully for the first question we want to ask ourselves before stepping into the yoga room and what we need to know about the nervous system so that we don't cause harm to our students. Hala offers invaluable advice about how to navigate different stress levels within the yoga space and how to understand where yoga fits in in the range of tools available for stress management. She does so by sharing her own experience as a teacher and also as someone who has experienced anxiety. Friends, if you know of Hala, you know she is so highly respected in the trauma-informed yoga space. And we are so lucky to have her join us for this inaugural episode of the Beyond Trauma podcast. Well, thank you so much, Hala. I'm a big fan. So um, I feel really excited about having you on this new show and especially excited because your work, your training, it incorporates both yoga, trauma-sensitive yoga, and somatics. And I think that we're uniquely aligned there. I know I'm moving more and more into interest in somatics. Yeah. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about your journey. Did yoga came first for you, right? So my journey, you know, yoga didn't really come first, but it came, you know, early on in my journey. I always wanted to study psychology since the seventh grade. And so I was devouring self-help books really young, knew I wanted to study psychology and went to college and was a psychology major. Um, But I was really disappointed in the psychology classes. They weren't really teaching me about humanity in the way that I was craving. And ironically, I was a fitness instructor and a personal trainer during college to make extra money. And 
it was really interesting because I was working with clients one-on-one and we'd be talking and I'd be stretching them out or they'd be like using a weight machine. And something really profound started to happen in those sessions. And what I didn't realize what was happening was actually this thing called the mind-body connection, right? They were connecting to their bodies. They were talking. Sometimes they'd open up to me. Emotions would emerge. And I was really curious about what was happening in these personal training sessions, right? It felt like there was some healing happening beyond just helping people get into shape. And when I walked into my first yoga class in college, I had this feeling like there was something happening in this space that I was looking for. I didn't have the words for it, right? When I look back, I see that the yoga space was a space to connect to our bodies and our breath and our nervous system in a way that nothing else offered. So that was sort of the order. And and I actually hated my first yoga class because I couldn't tolerate tuning into myself, but I knew it was a really important tool and that I needed to come back to it. So that was sort of the early part of my journey. Yeah. I I had a similar experience working with private clients. (laughs) Sometimes Mm -hmm. they want to talk to you the whole time. Yeah. And you do become sort of a therapist. You're lucky that you had that training. I definitely found myself in some cases like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not sure what to say here. Right. Well, you know, in college I didn't, you know, I was just taking some psychology classes, but people thought, well, you're taking a psychology class, you can be a therapist. So I also was a little bit not sure how to navigate it in the beginning. Yeah. As uh, yoga teachers or trainers, sometimes we're put into those spaces because what you're saying is because so much comes out as we're releasing tension from the body mm-hmm. and it's natural to want it to talk. Exactly. And exactly. to feel supported. So you, you took that yoga class, you couldn't stand it. Did you take that same class again or did you explore different styles of yoga? Well, I, I think it t- like it took a couple more years. I, you know, the class that I happened to walk into was a very gentle class. You know, there was a lot of breath work and you really had to confront yourself, right? It wasn't one of those quick vinyasa flow classes with lots of music, right? So I was like, note to self, try yoga one day, but I'm getting back on that treadmill with my headphones on while reading my college textbooks. I just couldn't tolerate that level of of presence. And then I, I got back to yoga, but through a different doorway, which was the more vigorous classes that moved fast and made you sweat. That was sort of my entryway in, right? My nervous system was more in like sympathetic arousal all the time. And I really needed to move to regulate myself and too much stillness would be overwhelming. So I did get back into yoga via more vigorous classes that like met me where I was at and then allowed me to slowly start to like tap into my breath and tap into sensation. But I, I did go back in that way. Yeah. And you were aware of this the whole time, like, oh, I'm not ready for that to go down that quiet path? You know, I don't think at the time I was that aware, like I can look back and be like, Oh, I I realized I did have some awareness, but I wasn't aware of my awareness. Right. It was like, Oh, note to self yoga could be good, but man, is it annoying? You know? And then just finding this other kind of yoga that worked for me. So it's, it's a sort of a retrospective awareness. (laughs) Yeah. And then did you decide early on to get certified as a yoga teacher? I did. I mean, I was in doing fitness and stuff. I got so much more interested in 
doing healing work. And it was really hard in the middle of a high impact aerobics class to be like, now feel your heart and what's going on. You know, I was like, this isn't working anymore. And I watched my mentors move away from the more harsh fitness world and move towards more mindful practices. And so I did get, decide to get certified in yoga pretty early on before going into my master's degree in psychology. So I had been, you know, I taught yoga for many years with this sort of awareness, like self-awareness bent. I mean, you know, just because it's yoga doesn't mean you're actually tuning into yourself, right? There were plenty of yoga classes that were really about fitness and even shaping your body. You know, they weren't about mindfulness necessarily. But for me in the beginning, you know, that's all I wanted. I wanted like a good workout and I wanted to feel good in my body. And again, I didn't have the framing of this is about mindfulness. This is about self-regulation. Or at least that framing didn't land with me just yet. It took me a while to be able to cultivate the stillness required to kind of help help me tune in to myself, right? It's a, It was a slow process as I think it is for a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think so many people come to yoga for a workout or maybe for stress relief or maybe a mm-hmm. doctor sent them for their back and... Mm-hmm slowly this other stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are teachers that will kind of egg it along, right. By <laughs> suggesting mm-hmm. um, or making us more aware. And uh, in a lot of cases, I think it's just that self-awareness becomes so heightened when you're practicing. Yeah. And I had some amazing teachers in the beginning. And I think that as a student, sometimes we hear what we're ready to hear. So even if teachers were inviting me to say, tune into my body, I was just trying to get to the most advanced pose, right? I was still interpreting it through my own lens. And so, you know, I've had students say that to me where they're like, oh my God, you said this thing today in class. And it was amazing. And I, I remember thinking with one student, I'm like, I say that every class, you know, <laughs> that you were ready to hear it today. That's so true. Yeah. That so true. You hear it differently when you're ready. And you can hear the same thing from a teacher and it just settles in on different levels. Yeah. Depending on where you're at. Yeah. Did you find yourself bringing any of your psychology training, the classes you were taking into your yoga teaching, or was that like two separate worlds? Well, so I taught yoga for a long time before I'd had sort of higher education in psychology. I just had my undergraduate degree. But then when I went to go do my clinical training, I went to go get a master's degree in psychology that's when my yoga teaching really changed, right? On two levels. So it was two things that happened simultaneously. So I had to go and do, get my hours, right? And in getting my hours for psychology, I had to work with a supervisor. And you know, the supervisor I thought was going to just help me make sure I was doing the right thing with my clients. But the supervisor really just wanted me to be aware of what the, the term we call in psychology is my countertransference. Countertransference is whatever I might be transferring onto my client as a therapist, like my need to be liked or my need to help them or whatever is really about me that's showing up in the therapeutic space. And there was so much about me wanting to please my clients or save my clients. And I started to think, well, this must show up in my yoga teaching as well, right? And so I started to reflect on myself as a teacher in a really different way, in a way that I'd never been invited to think about my yoga teaching. And so that was one really big shift. And I actually started supporting yoga teachers to understand their own countertransference and what we're bringing to our teaching so we can be conscious of it. 
And then the second piece that really transformed my teaching was getting trained in somatic experiencing. And somatic experiencing is trauma therapy. It's a body-based psychotherapy that helps to resolve symptoms of trauma. And that really reframed yoga for me. And there was a time where I was volunteering to teach yoga at Central Juvenile Hall to girls there. And there was a lot of trauma in the space. And I realized that I could start bringing the tools of somatic experiencing into a group yoga class. I knew that these young girls weren't going to have access to one-on-one therapy or trauma therapy. And I was able to bring the tools in quite organically and weave it in with the yoga. And so those were the two things that really transformed my teaching and, and brought my teaching to where it is today. Oh, that's incredible. You said so many important things there. I mean, the the first part about the self-awareness of what we're bringing into the space as yoga teachers and, you know, that, like you said, like wanting to be liked or wanting to save all this stuff that we're coming in with that has repercussions and can be felt and is probably an ongoing process of just always asking ourselves that question. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really, really good. That's really important and uh, work I do when I'm training trauma-informed yoga teachers. That's like the first question that we want to ask when we're showing up. And then what you said about bringing somatics into the classroom, I'd really love to hear more about that. How could yoga teachers incorporate somatics into their yoga teaching? Well, the first part is having an understanding of the nervous system and what it means to be in sympathetic arousal or shutdown, understanding how stress impacts the nervous system. That was not part of my yoga teacher training originally at all. So that's the first part is really understanding that. And, you know, in the framework of somatic experiencing has us think about trauma or excess toxic stress as unmetabolized or too much energy running through the nervous system. And part of what somatic practices can do is help us discharge and release that stress. But in order to do that, we have to first be willing to feel it. We have to connect to our bodies. And for people with unresolved or unmetabolized trauma or people that are just dealing with so much stress that it's just clogging up their nervous systems, we often leave our bodies or defend against those unpleasant sensations. So I think that, you know, when yoga teachers can have a framework of understanding the nervous system, understanding things like interoception, interoception is our capacity to sense what's happening inside of us, understanding things like hypervigilance, which is when we are overly vigilant to what's happening either in our bodies or around us, these foundational concepts, they plug right into yoga, right? So often as yoga teachers, we are taught to help people get grounded, to help people get centered, but not necessarily for nervous system regulation, maybe a little bit more for structural integrity of a pose. Although I think that that's really evolving. I think yoga teacher trainings have evolved a lot and there's a lot more study and understanding of the nervous system. So, you know, I think it's, that's really it because yoga is a form of somatics, right? Soma means body. It's a body therapy. It's more about the framework of understanding the nervous system and the stress response. Yeah. And I, I've heard some people say that like, I feel like yoga couldn't really get to some of that stuff on its own. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was because the way that they're trained or I don't know if you feel like yoga 
on its own can heal trauma or help the soften the impacts of trauma or you feel like it, it needs some other support? Absolutely not yoga on its own. A hundred percent. No. Um, you know, we need skilled support of a clinician, somebody who's holding space, especially people that are dealing with PTSD. I always tell people don't stop therapy. Um, yoga is a component of the healing, right? Yoga is one tool, you know, and it really does depend on the person, but you know, I think that having that one-on-one support from a skilled person is really important, especially if people are dealing with complex trauma or, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, right? I don't like to call it a disorder. It's, it's not a disorder, but yoga is a complementary therapy. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think selling it, <laughs> trying to sell our classes as being able to do everything really harms us in the, in the long yeah, run. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about stress. One thing I really liked in your book, Peace from Anxiety, which I've read twice now, Aww. is um, you, you make a point to say that stress isn't all inherently bad. And I was wondering about, I've always thought about the experience of putting our bodies into a bit of stress in the yoga classroom mm-hmm. and then like breathing and settling the nervous system could be practice for times when we're dysregulated off the mat. Do you see it that way? Or is there another way that we deal with stress in yoga spaces? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. You know, I I will often say to my students that yoga is about learning to tolerate discomfort, being okay, being uncomfortable, so that we put ourselves into stressful situations, right? Like a lunge that we're holding for a long time or a hip opener that's really uncomfortable. And then we learn to settle even when things are uncomfortable. And to me, that's really the key. It's not about never being uncomfortable, right? It's about being able to tolerate discomfort so that we can move through it or we can have the tools to not be overwhelmed by it. And, you know, I, I think that in terms of stress, trying to avoid stress can be very stressful in and of itself, but it's how we we handle the stress, right? Can we handle the stress? There's a term in somatic experience. We talk about our window of tolerance. And when our window of tolerance is small, we can't handle anything, right? Like one bad thing happens and we're like, you know, a pile on the floor, right? When we have too much stress, when we're not able to handle it. And part of self-regulation is expanding our window of tolerance, feeling like, there's plenty of things we could handle and we would be okay. And that's really, you know, with stress, it's about feeling like we can handle whatever's coming our way. And, and yoga can give us that practice. I'll often joke with my clients or my students, like we'll be in a hamstring stretch and I'll say, you know, try to feel the tension while you feel the breath, right? Try to stay present with the discomfort in your hamstring while feeling grounded, while knowing you're going to be okay. You know, and I say, try it with your hamstring, then you can try it with the big things in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holding both. Yeah. Beautiful. I wonder, you know, in a group yoga class, how when you have so many, you have some people, right, that are at the edge of their window, They're coming in, they're like almost in tears before they even just sat down. Mm -hmm. And then you have people that are there who have immense capacity. 
Do you have any thoughts on that as a yoga teacher who trains other teachers on, you know, the artfulness of having all those different nervous system states in the room? Yeah, that's a great question. I often tell teachers to imagine when they're teaching two ends of a spectrum, right? You have, just like you described, the person who's like, at their max. They can't handle anything else. And the person who's like doing amazing and rocking life, right? We have both in the room. And I think as teachers, we can skillfully speak to both. We can try to weave in both experiences. And I will sometimes say that in an opening meditation, some of you are here and your hearts are broken. Some of you are here and you're falling in love, right? That we are all here and we're in a different place and we can hold each other in that way. And similarly, for yoga teachers in how we cue, right? Noticing that some people might be overwhelmed by sensations and we have to guide them to stay grounded, to stay connected to breath, to feel whatever is resourcing them in the moment, right? And then we have people who are completely disconnected from their sensations and we need them to kind of move towards them a little more. And I I usually try to just educate the student and say, have them reflect on where they are. And I'll say things like, you know, if your nervous system is overwhelmed today, you might want to back off from this a little bit and focus a little bit more on grounding. And then I'll say, if you're a little bit more disconnected, or if it's going to benefit you to move towards the intensity, then I want you to do that. So I can't always know what my students need, but I can empower them to ask the questions to themselves so that they can figure out what they need in the moment. And and that's that's a good way to be inclusive. Oh, that's so helpful. I'm just rethinking how I would start a class. <laughs> Setting that space for all that to be in the room. Mm, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. And maybe you can share some, some poses or specific kind of sequencing you might do if you're seeing more dysregulation in the room or if you're seeing... Um, yeah, well, let's start with that. If you're seeing like something's, you know, maybe just happened... And you know that that folks are walking in dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know it's never about specific poses for me because one pose that's one person's medicine is another person's poison, right? It's everybody is responding differently. It's more about how we're inviting people to be in their bodies. So, you know, some people. They walk into a yoga class and they need to start really gentle, like breath work, gentle poses. They need to kind of be eased into the practice. Other people need to start strong, right? So, you know, first of all, what I say to teachers is figure out what your medicine is. You're never going to teach a class that works for everybody. And that's good. That's fine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Figure out what your medicine is. And so that students you know, they, maybe they've come to your class for the first time and maybe it's not the class for them, right? Maybe they need something different than what you have to offer, but you can offer your class in a way that empowers them rather than them walking away thinking, oh my God, I suck at yoga. That was terrible. They can go, oh, I actually need this other kind of class based on what the teacher said. So I'm going to go try that, right? So we want to cultivate what our own medicine is And I think, you know, the foundational things, no matter what the pose, no matter what the state is, people are needing grounding. (laughs) They're needing to figure out how to be present and connected to their breath. So whatever it is, that's what we're cueing, you know, grounding, presence, connection to breath. And that can happen in all the poses. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes like when I've taught adolescents, sometimes people will come in and I'm like, wow, they need to jump around. Like there's no way I'm going to get them to be still. Right. 
So I might start with a shake it off and moving around really quickly, but there's going to always be one or two people who really need to get still jumping around is going to be too much for them. So I'll always give that option, right? If you don't want to do this, here's something else you can do. I always want to offer those options. Yeah. Keeping a choice. Yeah. Yeah. You talk a lot in your book, Hala, about that wellness is not just an individual, something that we can just cure individually, right? Mm -hmm. It's in this larger context. And I just bringing it back to the the yoga room, just curious, right? Because we like I think, like you said, trauma teacher trainings or yoga trainings are changing. And I'm wondering, do you think that we can answer some of that in the yoga room, that needing to connect, that connecting to a something bigger than us, what you talk about, that building of community? Or do you think that these are things that just cannot be addressed in, you know, one hour, 90 minute yoga class? You know, I think that we can weave in so many different themes into the practice. And I do, what I love about group yoga classes is that we are in community together, right? And we'll often invite students to feel into what it's like, whether we're physically in a room together or we're on a Zoom together, right? To acknowledge the way that healing in many ways has to happen in community. And how do we, in the yoga space, create a space that's welcoming for everybody, where we're not being exclusive, where we're not judging ourselves or judging one another. The yoga room, the yoga space becomes a microcosm of the world. And that's why, you know, oftentimes harm happens in yoga spaces, right? Especially for people that tend to be targeted out in the world, often that gets reproduced in yoga spaces. And so that's a lot of what I talk to teachers about with training them is we don't want to reproduce those things, ableism, fat phobia, racism, misogyny, right? We want to, we, the yoga space can be a place to practice liberation together, to practice it in this one small space so that it, we can then have this imprint in our bodies and our minds and our hearts of what that can look like in the world. So yeah, I think in 90 minutes, we can speak to it for mm-hmm. sure and plant seeds and have people reflect on what does collective care look like and what does healing and community mean to them? Yeah, I hope so. I think there's a great opportunity there just being together, like you said, even over Zoom over these last years, just giving a space for people to come together. Yeah. Um, and there could be more opportunity if, in the way that we frame it mm-hmm. you know, for folks to make connections, yeah. even to help each other with other needs, you know, if they mm-hmm. live in the same neighborhoods. But it's sometimes hard to eloquently do that. And also you're balancing the the desires of that student that's coming in that wants to just rock her handstand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I like what you said also about kind of knowing what teacher you are and not trying to be everything mm-hmm. to everyone. Yep, that's really important. And so people gravitate towards like the teacher that they need at, at that time. Yeah, I think so. Or sometimes though, people will gravitate towards the teacher that reproduces their trauma, unfortunately. Um, So, you know, I remember having a therapy client who had really severe digestive issues and she was very perfectionistic and very stressed. And after, you know, several sessions, I asked her, I said, you know, have you ever tried yoga? She said, oh, I go to yoga three days a week. I said, oh, I said, what's, what kind of, you know, what's the teacher like that you go to? She said, oh, he's really mean. 
And I laughed and I thought she's, she's doing yoga with her inner critic, right? I mean, whether the teacher was actually mean or not, her experience of yoga was this like space where she had to perform and be a perfectionist. (laughs) So I gently like invited her to think about maybe trying some other classes, you know, to see what that would be like. But that was comfortable for her because it fit her, her like limiting belief about herself. Yes. I was just going to say that it's like that feeling was comfortable and known. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked what you said in the book about how stress can be like that. Yeah. Like who would we be if we weren't worried all the time or what would we do with our energy and our thoughts? Yeah, do you see that arising for many of your students or your clients? Absolutely. You know, I, I remember I had this powerful session once with a client who she had so much fear, you know, she had chronic panic attacks. And we were doing this visualization once where she said she was like leaning against, she saw herself leaning against this wall. Right. And on the other side of the wall was like everything that scared her. Right. And it's like, she didn't want to look at what scared her. Right. So we did this whole visualization where at some point she like peeked over the wall. Right. I think she was anticipating seeing like really scary stuff, but on the other side of the wall was actually peace and beauty. It was like wonderful. And she realized that what really scared her was the unfamiliarity of what it might mean for her to be at peace, right? She was so used to being in constant crisis. And even though that was painful, it was familiar. And I think we will often stay in what feels familiar, even if it's painful, because we're afraid of what's unfamiliar, even if it's better. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something we can leave our students with as they're starting to feel more open and okay, that they don't snap back. Yeah. You know, I often invite students to reflect on and make a distinction between the kind of pain that's an indication that something's wrong and the kind of pain that's an indication that they might be growing and that the transformational pain is the pain we want to stay with, right? It's not the pain we want to move away from. And so again, I think that that's what a yoga practice can teach us is to be skillful, right? Of like, oh, I'm in this hip stretch, but I have this sharp searing pain. That means I'm shook it out, right? Or I'm in this hip, hip stretch and I'm feeling this dull throbbing pain. And when I breathe, it actually settles. Then I'm going to stay. So when we can stay with our sensations, we can distinguish the kind of discomfort we're in. And we don't always want to move away from discomfort, right? Sometimes we want to move towards it. Yes, absolutely. So we learn so much when we can. Yeah. And in this world, I'm taking it out of the, the yoga classroom and into the world, which you do, and especially I've done with your organization off the mat. Mm. I think this is really resonating for me, you know, in, in, in going into that discomfort and having more capacity for being with that discomfort when we really look at some of the, the pain in this world. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. As folks practice and sometimes become more sensitive to maybe things that they've been hiding from in the world, do you see that come up? Well, I think that for folks who live a pretty like privileged or protected existence, right? And and I'll include myself in this. You know, when I first did yoga, I was not aware or tuned into what's happening in the world. I didn't have to be, right? I was tuned into myself, right? My own neuroses. And, you know, I invite my students 
that they have to expand their awareness, right? That self-awareness includes awareness of the socio-political context, right? What's happening politically, what's happening socially and culturally in the world. And for people who are not privileged by those systems, they have no choice. They're very aware of, you know, racism or ableism or transphobia, right? It's their lived experience. They can't not be aware of those things. And so, so for folks who, you know, are more targeted, oftentimes the yoga practice can be a place to feel some sanctuary from that, right? So that they can go back into the world with more resilience. And for folks that tend to not be targeted, the yoga practice, in my opinion, needs to let them open their hearts more to the world, right? It's, it's our responsibility to cultivate that sensitivity. But I think I've seen people use yoga to deny that, right? To say, well, the, the news is negative energy or this is negative. I'm not going to think about it, right? And so for people who don't have to think about it, again, that's part of the practice is, well, maybe we need to move towards that discomfort, right? It's an important part of a real yoga practice. I will be arrogant enough to say that, you know, it's not a real yoga practice if you're using it to shield yourself from the reality of the world. I like that. How I go bold and say it, right? <laughs> right. Well, I, I, it's like one of my pet peeves when people are like, this is the real yoga, right? Cause I think there's so many different expressions of yoga and ways people teach and practice, but I'm pretty passionate about it because I think we become part of the problem if we're just trying to do yoga and meditate our way into dissociation or accountability or responsibility in the world, then we're not helping anybody except ourselves. And then we're part of the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, thank goodness, like you said, it seems to be changing and there seems to be more awareness in the yoga classrooms. What changes have you seen? I mean, you know, I, I have a particular stance because, you know, I'm exposed to teachers and students and trainings that want to bring in more social justice and trauma-informed practices. But I just know, you know, back when I started doing this stuff, it was just, I didn't know anybody else who was leading these trainings or talking about social justice. And now I feel like I see it more and more. I was on a committee with Yoga Alliance where they were talking about inclusivity and requiring modules in yoga teacher trainings to talk about inclusivity more. I think ever since the murder of George Floyd, mainstream organizations are realizing they need to be talking about racism. So I think that people who haven't, haven't had to be open to this stuff are. I also think that the rise in white supremacy and the rise in this rhetoric is because people are scared, you know, like white people are scared. People in dominant culture are scared because we're talking about things like racism more and more. It's becoming more mainstream. And so when I see things like people trying to make critical race theory illegal in schools and all that, I'm like, yeah, you should be scared, right? Because we are going to be talking about these issues more. We have to, in order to heal them, but it's threatening to some people, especially to the people that hold all the power. So I know I jumped, did a big jump from yoga to to our culture at large, but, you know, I think that yoga spaces are reflecting that. You've been in it, like you said, you've been committed to that from, from early on. I mean, a lot of times when we get into this space, social justice service, you see a lot of folks that even yoga teachers who frankly aren't, aren't even considering that space, you see a lot of burnout. I'm just wondering how you're able to stay so present and consistent. And do you have the practices or tricks for your capacity 
Yeah. You know, I think that it took me a while because I definitely was burning out on this work early on. Cause I felt like I had to save the world, you know? And, and I also felt like I had no right to be okay when so many people were suffering. So I also had this subconscious commitment to staying in my own suffering as like a show of solidarity to people who are suffering, which makes no sense because then I don't have energy available to do the work that I can do. So it's taken me a while to feel like if I do have the opportunity to be okay, how dare I not be okay? Because that allows me to have more energy to give. So, you know, I have very, very strong boundaries around work, around, you know, the things I commit to. But I think the thing that really allows this work to be sustainable is that I actually find it really joyful. You know, I do most of my work in collaboration with people I love and respect and look up to. And I love it. You know, I love having to have meetings with my colleagues and my co-teachers. I love brainstorming with them. I don't do this work alone. And so it's also fun. And, you know, I think we need to have a paradigm of, you know, healing and working towards social justice that includes being joyful along the way whenever we can, right? So we have to embrace and feel both the grief and the joy. And so for me, it's really about collaboration and feeling like I have a right to be okay. And I have a very blessed life. I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, a community around me. You know, my life is really beautiful. And of course, there's painful, difficult parts to it. But I'm really, really steeped in community, which makes all the difference in the world. You said so many important things there. (laughs) And my eyes closed and I'm like, take it all in. Don't forget it. I have like two ways I can go with this. Um, so I'll, I'll first just, I kind of want to echo some of the things that you just said, just for listeners and, and for myself, frankly, you know, about allowing ourselves to feel joy. And I love what you said, how dare I not be okay since I have so much, so much ability to be okay. And that gives me more capacity. And then what you said about being in collaboration and this kind of, you have the boundaries I'm sure you need some alone time, some time for yourself. And then you also get this energy off working with others and creating together. That felt really exciting for me hearing you talk about that and just imagining you still after all these years in such a, I guess, in it's such a place of learning, being open to learn from the people you're collaborating with. And I know that you're one of those people that's continuously um, educating yourself. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's the main thing, you know, for me with collaboration is when I first started really collaborating deeply and it was with Sean Korn and Suzanne Sterling with Off the Mat. I remember like my first instinct when I was being invited into that collaboration was, oh no, they're going to find out, right? It was this like, you know, what if I'm not as smart as I think, or what if I'm not as good of a teacher as I think, and if I'm collaborating, then they're going to see that. And, and that's when I realized I have to do this, right? That collaboration is about growth and it is about being willing to recognize our edges and the things that we have to learn. And that keeps it exciting too, right? Because it's so boring to just be in our own head with our own thoughts. Working with the two other strong women and working together, I mean, that's the practice, right? Absolutely. And what the three of you built together is uh, so important and has you know really set the stage for a lot of my work. So I... Aww. I have to thank you. It's so great to hear, Laura. I love that. It's absolutely the truth. And then getting to speak to you and to read your book and to hear your story has been um, so affirming. Mm, Thank you. 
I know that that even with all these years of yoga and and that you know you are a therapist in your own right and that you've done the somatics you also talk in your book about still facing anxiety and having it hit kind of unexpectedly in later years mm-hmm. if it's okay just I'd love to ask you a little bit about that yeah yeah for sure yeah you know it was ironic because you know I'd never really seriously struggled with anxiety And then in my early 40s, early 40s, yeah, I got hit with it. It took me a while to realize that that's what was happening. At first, I started to get afraid of, be afraid of flying. And I'd get on a plane and I would just be sure the plane was going to go down. You know, it just totally felt like flying was the stupidest thing we could all be doing. And why were we doing that? And then I started to be anxious about a week before flying because I used to fly once a month for work. And then I would get anxious about getting anxious. And then, you know, and then it just started, it sort of snowballed. And it was really like, it was so hard. It was so hard. And I had all the tools, right? I was already, you know, working with folks that had trauma and anxiety. And so, you know, luckily I did all the things, right? I shared with my close friends what was going on for me. I asked for support. I, you know, doubled up on therapy. I went and did all my blood work because I suspected part of it was hormonal. And it, you know, it took me a couple of years to shift it, you know, because anxiety is, it's not just one thing, right? It's physical, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's ancestral. And it was really, really humbling. And I mean, it really inspired the book, right? Like I wasn't surprised when Shambhala came to me and said, we'd like for you to write a book on yoga and anxiety. I was like, of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> um, not that, you know, just having gone through it myself makes me an expert, but like I was an expert because I'd supported so many other people in it. And then I had my own experience with it. And, you know, and now I'm, you know, my younger son is dealing with anxiety. So now I'm having a whole new experience of being a parent of an anxious child and actually anxiety in kids is really different than it is in adults. And so that's been a whole new learning curve for me because the tools that I needed, the things that I use with my clients, with my adult clients, some of them aren't useful with kids and it's a different methodology. So, you know, and the biggest thing, you know, and I say this to my son is, I healed my anxiety, not when I stopped being anxious, but when I stopped being afraid of being anxious, because then the anxiety can come and and I'm not overwhelmed by it. And that's really the freedom, right? And that comes back to our conversation about yoga, giving us the tools to be okay with discomfort. Life is uncomfortable. And if we're okay with that, then we're free, right? And if we're not, then we're going to not be okay. Yeah. That's the thing with anxiety is that you start getting anxious about when that you're going to be anxious (laughs) and it it snowballs. Yeah. And I I really appreciate your sharing because I think so many of us yoga teachers, again, about the industry and like creating this idea, I've always found this so harmful. So so I've been using my platform since the beginning to say like, we're not like cured and like we don't get stressed, right? It's like almost there was this phase where yoga teachers are just trying to sell this happiness. Yeah. That it was all about, you were going to be happy if you took my class. Yes. Yeah. 
so harmful, right? Absolutely. Because then, you know, somebody comes in and they're unhappy and then they're told that this should make them happy. And if it doesn't work, now they're worse. Now they feel like they're broken, right? (laughs) Yeah, like, yes. Yeah. 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 Why isn't it working for me? Right. I must be really messed up. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I always tell teachers, I'm like, you know, the best thing we can do is help our students be with their pain. Right. Don't try to make it go away. Actually, in being able to be with it, that can relieve our suffering a little bit. But I do agree. It's so harmful to you know, create this like aspirational marketing, right? Like we do it with mental health the same way that we might critique a body image stuff, right? Like, oh, do yoga to get skinny, right? Mental health also is infected by this aspirational marketing, right? That the goal, like do this and you're just going to be happy forever, right? That is truly harmful. Yeah, it's very harmful. And I think it, each time the yoga teacher or therapist can share a little bit that they're still working through stuff and yeah. that you shared that you don't just use one tool. Exactly. Then there's not one cure-all, but it's kind of finding that balance of, of what works for you using mm-hmm. many different tools and also investigating many different causes, which I think is repeating, you know, that sometimes hormonal could be a big part of it. We don't talk about that a lot. Yeah. Hormones, parasites, gut infections, right? I mean, it's mind body, right? So we have to work on all levels. And in the book, I I noticed you also talk about that daily maintenance. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I like to talk about it. It's like, it's like cleaning up as you go along, right? Like, you know, every day, you know, you pick up or you try to pick up your socks off the floor and wash the dishes, right? Do the things that keep the home from being overburdened, right? And then you got to do the deep cleaning. You got to get under the bed and into the corners and all that, right? So healing requires both like the daily, the things we do every day to be okay, right? And then the deeper work that gets into like the nooks and the crannies and the deeper areas. Is there a daily practice that you lean on or one that you'd recommend? You know, mine changes, has changed a lot. Like over the pandemic, I have needed a lot like to like a vigorous movement (laughs) to regulate my nervous system. So I don't do it daily because my, you know, I'm 48 years old and my knees and my shoulders and my joints are like, yeah, not so much. Right. But if I can get my heart rate up for like 20 to 30 minutes a day, it really regulates my nervous system. So that's been my practice lately, whether it's like going on a bike ride or going on a jog or doing an interval training video, you know, that's actually what what I'm needing right now. Right. But I would say like my daily, my, like my baseline things that I need to be okay have to do with sleep, hydration and food, you know, and if I'm getting enough sleep, if I'm hydrated, if I'm eating the foods that I know make me feel balanced, then I have a lot more resilience to deal with anything that comes my way. And if I'm getting 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, then I'm styling, like bring it on, whatever, just bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, uh, I can resonate with that. I have a three-year-old, so I'm not always getting the sleep. (laughs) Yeah, not yet. Yep. Oh my God. I know the sleep is such a big one. It really is. It really is. And, you know, and I think that like community, again, we're so often told about these individual tools, which I know I just mentioned, but 
I also know I need to prioritize being with my family and being with friends. And that's something that I'll often get pushed to the side because I feel like I should always be working or taking care of the kids or, you know, being productive, but making sure that I'm being fed that way is so important. I'm wondering if there's any tips for yoga teachers who want to go deeper into trauma sensitivity, places you would send them to start that journey. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of great trainings. I'm, I have one. I have a great faculty, Kira Hagland, Ardub Alves, and Nikki Myers. We have a training called Collective Resilience, and you can do foundation certification, intermediate or advanced. So we offer them online twice a year. We have one coming up in a couple of weeks, but I'm not sure once folks are listening to this, if it will have passed or not. And I'm really proud of the training. It's trauma-informed yoga and somatics. Everything is grounded in social justice. And there's other trainings that I love. I know that there's the trauma-conscious yoga method with Natita Gessel, and she's an uh, amazing, she's a social worker who also talks a lot about racialized trauma in her work. There's a lot of good people out there doing trauma work and, and it makes me happy. And I would say there's a lot of trainings that call themselves trauma-informed that aren't necessarily taught by people who are experts in the field. And so I feel worried about that as well. So I'll always say to folks to, you know, really look at the training of the teachers just to make sure they're really steeped and have experience in the field of trauma, but definitely love to plug my training. Cause I think it's really, really solid. We offer supervision and mentor groups, you know, anybody who trains with us, we want them to feel like they've, they've really received support from us in order to feel confident going out and working with survivors. Yeah. And you really do want to make sure, I mean, if, if folks are listening and they're, they're thinking of doing a training that, that you, you're studying with the right people. You spend a lot of time in trainings. Yeah. And if your teachers haven't done their own work, like you've mentioned a couple of times, Helen, that today that, you know, that mm-hmm. can get passed on to the student. Yeah. It can be re-triggering and harm can be done. So yeah. definitely investing in good training with with teachers who you know have experience is is really important, especially as trauma becomes more of a hot topic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You see a lot more trauma trainings popping up. Mm -hmm. And it's important, like in any field that we we do our research. So I appreciate that. And um, if we can send people your way to your training, I know that it would be of great benefit to them. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that more trauma survivors are being told they should try yoga, right? So we're going to see more people in our classes that really we need to make sure we're caring for skillfully. Yeah. Very important. And I know a lot of yoga teachers that do not feel they got that the right kind of training for what to do. Um, if someone is triggered in class or how to make the classroom just a little bit safer. Exactly. Yeah. Aside from your training, what else is coming up for you? Where do you see yourself going and growing in these next years? Well, you know, I've been really tuning into what this next thing is for me. And there's just so much, you know, ultimately what I love to do is teach. And I've been teaching at Pitzer College, which has been great working with college students. I teach a community engagement class there. And we do a lot of work on embodied social justice and what it means to be in communities that maybe are not ours, supporting their efforts. And, you know, I started an online membership thing a couple of years ago in the middle of the pandemic. And it's been a really interesting space, people all over the country and all over the world wanting to do healing work together. 
And so I've been curious about how to allow that platform to go deeper. Like how do we support people more deeply? And one of the things that, you know, going virtual, you know, for a lot of people, I know it was a loss because they really, you know, we want spaces physically where we can be together and it provides such accessibility for people that might not have anything in their own communities that they can attend. So, you know, I'm reflecting on how to continue to create spaces where people can do healing work in community together. And so I think my work's going to go in that direction. And, you know, the other piece of my work that I love is supporting teachers, you know, via the certification program, but I also work in schools with school teachers and educators, supporting them to be trauma-informed in the classroom and how to practice self-care. So I love helping the helpers. So I think those are going to be my two big focuses for the next few years, at least. Uh, Helping the helpers is needed, I think, more than ever now. Yeah, absolutely. And and everyone is dealing, you know, with the pandemic, the just mental health issues are skyrocketing. Folks are overwhelmed and we're going to be feeling the reverberations of that for years and years to come. So being able to support those teachers and therapists with the skills and tools to hold space without burning out themselves is going to be vital. It really is, Helen. I can see how just by offering some support and capacity building that you'll be helping so many people because when you help the helper, you help all the people that they're in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I hope. Yeah. If it's okay, I'd like to ask you, I know off the mat into the world is on a little bit of a pause. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you can share about what's coming next for that organization? You know, I don't know. We really felt like it was time to step back and make space for different leadership and to really think about the vision. So what we're going to be doing for the next year is just meeting with our faculty once a month to just connect and hear about what they're doing and see what emerges from that, right? Just build spaces to connect and support so we can see what emerges. We don't want our own agenda to get in the way, right? We want to be really open to whatever has to come next. So we're really trying to not not have an agenda, but just create spaces for whatever wants to emerge to emerge. So we'll see. That's beautiful. And that's the first commandment of doing service work is not trying to put our own things of what we, what we think needs fixing, right. But just listening. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so wonderful to, meet a person who is so in practice of the things that she's teaching. Mm. Um, It really um, motivates me and it it energizes me. And it gives me a lot of faith, Helen, in folks to just feel your presence through your voice and just to meet someone who's so in in alignment in the way that she's showing up. Mm. I really wish everything good for you. And I, I believe that your work is manifesting in the world in, in such a positive way. And I want to thank you for that and how it's impacted me. Mm-hmm. And and just thank you wholeheartedly. Aw, thank you. It's I'm so glad we got to talk, Laura. I love talking to folks that are doing similar work. And I'm honored to get to be on this. I'm one of your early guests on your podcast. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We 
accidentally immortalized in someone else's land. 